This is the first day of this February 2020 four-day session, and uh, I'm going to start out uh, reading uh, from the teachings of Ajahn Chah, uh, a, a very well-known Thai forest monk practitioner uh, who died in uh, 1992. He was born in uh, 1918, died in 1992, and he was the teacher of Jack Cornfield, who many people have heard of or read from, um, and another other a n- number of other teachers, Ajahn Samedo, I believe, and Ajahn Brahm, who are fairly well known uh, and have written books of their own. Uh, but uh, Ajahn Chah is something else, and uh, I thought I would read a little bit about him. This is. What I'm reading here is from a book called Being Dharma, The Essence of Buddha's Teachings, uh, Ajahn Chah, forward by Jack Kornfield. Just to sort of set uh, <clears throat> set the stage and get a, a feeling for this uh, for this guy. I think at some point Stephen Batchelor referred to him as uh, looking a bit like a bullfrog. Got a very nice smile, though, as I look at the <laughs> a very, very nice bullfrog. Uh, <clears throat> so this begins, When the first Western disciples arrived at Wat Pa Pong in the 1960s, Ajahn Chah did not give them the special admiration and treatment that Western monks often received in Thailand. He did not excuse them from any of the demanding challenges and strict training of the monastery. Seated on a wooden bench at the foot of his cottage in the center of a huge forest, he peered at them like a watchmaker taking off the cover of an intriguing new piece and demanded to know whether they understood suffering or how to find peace in this world. And then he would laugh and welcome and bid them to listen and if they dared to join him in practice for a while. In those years, the monastic community was relatively small, and Ajahn Chah was still unknown as a teacher. Twenty-five years later, he had become one of the most honored and revered forest masters of the century, and in 1993, nearly a million people joined the king and queen of Thailand at his funeral in order to pay their last respects at his temple. By then, his influence had spread worldwide with a hundred branch monasteries and respected disciples teaching internationally. So, and then I'm going to read some from the translator's preface. Uh, The translator of this particular book was Paul Breiter, who uh, practiced with Ajahn Chah in uh, the 70s in Thailand. He says, Ajahn Chah constantly pushed people past what they were likely to consider their limits. The practice in his monasteries did not always follow what might seem to be reasonable, and the routine was always changing. He sometimes recounted his own difficulties in practice and the resolve with which he faced them and spurred himself on. And then this is uh, his own words. Before I started to practice, I thought to myself, The Buddhist religion is here, 
available for all, yet why do only some people practice it while others don't? Or if they do practice, they do so only for a short while and then give it up. And those who don't give up still don't knuckle down and do the practice. Why is this? So I resolved to myself, okay, I'll give up body and mind for this lifetime and try to follow the teaching of the Buddha down to the last detail. I'll reach understanding in this lifetime because if I don't, I'll still be sunk in suffering. I'll let go of everything else and make a determined effort. No matter how much difficulty or suffering I have to endure, I'll persevere. If I don't do it, I'll just keep on doubting. Thinking like this, I got down to practice. No matter how much difficulty I had to endure, I did it. I looked on my whole life as if it were only one day and a night. I gave up. I'll follow the teaching of the Buddha. I'll follow the Dharma to understanding why this world is so wretched. I wanted to know. I wanted to see the truth, so I turned to the practice of Dharma. I'm really struck by the phrase, I looked on my whole life as if it were only one day and a night. The, <clears throat> perhaps uh, that's quite a tall order, but perhaps we can think about looking on Sashin as just one day and a night. It's one sustained effort. It says, while he was tolerant of people's shortcomings, and limitations. He always wanted his disciples to make as much effort as they possibly could simply for the goal of escaping from the clutches of Mara, the evil one, who holds us prisoner in this realm of suffering. You see plenty of mentions of Mara in, in Zen as well. Sort of the Buddhist devil figure. really the habits and temptations of the mind that we all succumb to, to one degree or another. This is Mara. He did not see this as something easily accomplished. If practicing Dharma were easy, everyone would be doing it, he often said, but as really the only thing worth doing with a human life. The worldly way of living generally involves filling life with busyness, distractions, and amusements, in an endless pursuit of happiness and an effort to avoid boredom. But a constantly distracted and excited mind is a tired and worried mind. When a person makes a commitment to undergo Buddhist training, he or she is setting out to free the mind from all such dependence. It can be an extremely painful and frustrating process as accumulated habits, hopes, and fears start to surface in a new open space of non-distraction. Ajahn Chah pointed out that there are people who think monastic life is some kind of escape, but when it is actually undertaken, facing oneself for the first time with nowhere to hide can be like walking into a raging storm. I often tell people that I'm introducing to, uh, to meditation that uh, to, to sit and try to still the mind is is like someone who's been floating down a stream. Of course, it's the stream of our own 
uh, incessant thoughts been floating down a stream in a raft and they get the notion that I'm going to stand on the bed of the stream and see what it's really like. And when you do, it's shocking how much force there is in our habit energy, in our constant pattern of thoughts. And sometimes that initial realization uh, can be uh, demoralizing. People sit once or twice and then they say, well, it's not for me. I just don't have that kind of mind. What most people, I think everyone here knows, is whether your mind is naturally quiet or whether you uh, find yourself constantly facing distractions, the effort of turning the mind inward, of letting go of thoughts, seeing what's there, is inherently rewarding and it changes the quality of our life. So much depends on the commitment. Why it's so inspiring to read uh, what Ajahn Chah says about himself. To make that commitment. We all can, to one degree or another, just say, no matter what happens, I'm going to keep going. You know, sometimes we fall down. Sometimes the mind goes on vacation. And we realize after you know two or three rounds of sitting that we just haven't even been there. It happens. But we, we keep getting another chance. We're always right here. We have the ability to turn the mind to what's real in any moment, in any minute. We have the ability to let go of our preoccupations and just breathe, just look into the koan, just be present. So Zajan Cha often speaks about heedlessness. <clears throat> By that term, he means a careless, unaware approach to living, and he notes that it is often compounded by comforts. But until one starts to do without such things, these links remain hidden. Soft living tends to make the mind soft. He spoke about the simple way of life in the not-too-distant past in Thailand. Before, when the country was not developed, everyone built their toilet some distance from the house, often out in the forest. You had to walk out there to use it. But now the toilet has to be in the house. The city people even have to have it right there where they sleep. Such a concept struck him as funny. Laughing, he said, people think that will make them more comfortable and happy to have a toilet in their bedroom. But it doesn't really bring happiness, and it increases the habit of laziness. Yeah. <clears throat> of course, even uh, he wasn't living in upstate New York, going out to an outhouse in the middle of winter. If you've ever done such a thing, it's a little daunting. I appreciate what he's getting at, and it reminds me of what the Dalai Lama said. He said, the West has perfected samsara. We, our problem-solving mind goes at every inconvenience, uh, everything that's a little rough, not so pleasing, and we try to fix it. And it's just amazing how, <clears throat> without any sense of irony, you can see advertisements talking about 
how wonderful your life will be if you have a particular car or some other product. It's, it's nice to watch that process sometimes. It's, it's true that, you know, certain things, you get them, you buy them, they're great. There's that uh, temporary joy that comes with it, but over time we adjust. We, we set ourselves to whatever level of comfort we've dialed in and uh, all our problems are still there. They haven't gone away. Sashin is certainly not particularly comfortable. And uh, there's, there's a natural tendency to sort of dread, going to get not enough sleep, at least by my standards. My legs are going to be sore. It varies from person to person, sometimes very sore. I'm going to feel anxiety because I'm trying to sit well and I'm worried about what someone else will think about me. But that's just all chatter. It's, it's, doesn't, it's not predictive of whether the experience will be a good one or not. There's an idiot inside our head throwing out, this is going to be horrible, this is a big problem. Uh, it, it, it helps to just Check that out. There's a saying that I've seen attributed to Mark Twain and to somebody else say, I'm an old man. <clears throat> I have known many problems, none of which happened. <clears throat> Going back, his way of training was not meant to be an endurance test, however. When he saw disciples making great efforts in a mindless, mechanical way, he would correct them. And he was never ambiguous about where the emphasis should lie. After the Buddha's years of fruitless asceticism, he came to realize the way to liberation lay in the mind. The body itself was just a material object incapable of enlightenment. It was also not something evil that hindered spiritual development and needed to be tortured or weakened. This is as much a deviation as trying to beautify the body and seeking happiness through sensual pleasure and social approval. So the role of asceticism is in creating simplicity and non-involvement and confusion, not deprivation for its own sake. And statements such as destroy your body or destroy the world do not literally refer to suicide or nuclear weapons, but in the context of meditation and Ajahn Chah's lively way of teaching to destroying attachment to these things. See this message repeated from so many teachers in so many different traditions. Destroy the body, destroy the mind. Destroy our clinging and our conceptualizing. You can say destroy the self, this false self that we have built up and think is real. Where is it?
Uh, John Chow was not afraid to test the extremes in his own practice, and he saw this experience as instructional for himself. He sometimes pushed people to very difficult limits and beyond. Such methods can be painful to undergo, but one comes to see where the mind holds on and limits itself, and to see that the real suffering comes from the mind's attachments, fears, and preconceptions. He did not recommend fasting, vows of silence, or avoiding contact with others. He said, we practice with our eyes open. If avoiding people and sense contact were the way to enlightenment, the blind and the deaf should be enlightened. Wisdom is to be found in the realm of sense contact. The world is transcended by knowing the world, not by avoiding it. Living at close quarters with others in the same routines day after day, which is the way of life in his monasteries, can reveal a lot about one's habits and the way one creates suffering for oneself. He often said, if it's hot and difficult, that's it. That's the place of practice. For those of us who aren't monks, the world is in our face even to a higher degree, but it's not necessarily an impediment to practice. The whole question is whether you tune out or whether you tune in. Awareness can be... Uh, your, your awareness is available everywhere, all the time. Be aware in the disco. <clears throat> Not that I plan to go there. It's hot and difficult, that's it. That's the place of practice. Most people know the story about the monk who came to a Zen master and asked what to do when it's so hot and humid. What does the master do? He said, when it's hot, let the heat kill you. When it's cold, let the cold freeze you. Let the cold kill you. The problem is our resistance. The problem is trying to avoid what can't be avoided. The problem is worrying about it. How bad is this going to get? The problem is lack of faith. Okay, I'm going to uh, go now to uh, another book uh, <clears throat> by Ajahn Chah, a book of his teachings, translated from his talks. And this one's called Everything Arises, Everything Falls Away, Teachings on Impermanence and the End of Suffering. Let's see who the translator is here. Uh, this also translated by Paul Breiter. And uh, this, is, this chapter is entitled Understanding Mind. In meditation practice, we work to develop mindfulness so that we will be constantly aware. Working with energy and patience, the mind can become firm. work to develop mindfulness so that we will be constantly aware. So 
is attention. Awareness, attention. <clears throat> this is our, the currency we work with. This is what we bring to practice. This is what's required. This is all that's required. To be awake, to be aware, to pay attention. It's a story many people have heard of a monk who came to the master and said, uh, master was doing some calligraphy, said, I wonder if you could, uh, I love your calligraphy, so great. I wonder if you could write something for me. And the master took a sheet and made the character for attention. And uh, the person said, oh, wow, that's great. Thanks, thanks. I wonder, could you write a little, little something more? And the master wrote, attention, attention. And the man said, okay, attention, attention. He said, what, what is this attention anyway? And the master wrote, attention, attention, attention. It's not something to understand, it's something to do. It's what we do here in Sashin. To glue the mind to the practice. To see, to see what's there. See the good stuff, the bad stuff. It's all stuff, it's all changing stuff. A Japanese monk Ryokan said, if you want to find the meaning, stop chasing after so many things. We need to develop this flavor, this, this propensity, this trust in just simply being aware and looking within. It's our refuge. It's not a refuge of avoidance. It's a refuge of presence. Refuge of simplicity. The Hindu sage, really is the best word for him, Ramakrishna, lived in the 1800s, said, no one can realize truth which is utterly simple without becoming utterly simple. So working with energy and patience, the mind can become firm. Then whatever sense phenomena we experience, whether agreeable or disagreeable, and whatever mental phenomena, such as reactions of gladness or dejection, we will see them clearly. Phenomena are one thing. The mind is another. They're separate matters. When something contacts the mind and we are pleased by it, we want to pursue it. When something is displeasing, we want to escape from it. This is not seeing the mind, but running after phenomena. Phenomena are phenomena, mind is mind. We have to separate them and recognize what the mind is and what phenomena are. Then we can be at ease. When someone speaks harshly to us and we get angry, it means that we are deluded by phenomena and are following after them. The mind is caught by its objects and follows after its moods. 
please understand that all these things we experience externally and internally are nothing but deceptions. They are nothing certain or true. And pursuing them, we lose our way. The Buddha wanted us to meditate and see the truth of them, the truth of the world. The world is the phenomena of the six senses. Phenomena are the world. If we don't understand the Dharma, if we don't know the mind and don't know phenomena, then the mind and its objects get mixed together. Then we experience suffering and feel that our minds are suffering. We feel our minds are wandering, uncontrollably experiencing different unhappy conditions, changing into different states. That's not really the case. There aren't aren't many minds, but many phenomena. But if we aren't aware of ourselves, we don't know our minds, and so we follow after these things. People say, my mind is upset, my mind is unhappy, my mind is scattered. But that's not really true. The mind isn't anything the defilements are. People think their minds aren't comfortable or happy, but actually the mind is the most comfortable and happy thing. When we experience the different unsatisfactory states, that is not the mind. Please make note of this. When you are experiencing these things in the future, remember, Ajahn Chah said, this is not the mind. We are practicing to reach the mind, the old mind. This original mind is unconditioned. In it, there is no good or bad, long or short, black or white. But we are not content to remain with this mind because we don't look at and understand things clearly. Because we're busy pursuing things and pushing things away. Because we pick and choose. Because preferences aren't cast aside. Dharma is beyond the habits of the ordinary mind. Before we have trained well, we may mistake wrong for right and right for wrong. So it's necessary to listen to teaching to gain understanding of Dharma and to be able to recognize Dharma in our own mind. Foolishness is in the mind. Intelligence is in the mind. Darkness and delusion exist in the mind. Knowledge and illumination exist in the mind. His terminology can be a little confusing. Um, When he says, none of this is the mind, he's talking about the unconditioned original mind. But it's true, our minds are full of anxiety and greed, greed, anger, and folly. Says it's like a dirty plate in your home that's filthy with grime and grease or a dirty floor. Using soap and water to wash it, you can remove the dirt. When the dirt is gone, you have a clean plate or a clean floor. Here, the thing that is soiled is the mind. When we practice correctly, a clean thing is found, just like with the dirty floor that is made clean. When the dirt is scrubbed off, the condition of being clean appears. It's only the dirt that obscures it. The mind in its natural state, the true mind, is something that is stable and undefiled. It is bright and clean. It becomes obscured and defiled because it meets with sense objects and comes under their influence through liking and disliking. It's not that the mind is inherently defiled. 
but that it is not yet established in Dharma, so phenomena can stain it. The nature of the original mind is unwavering. It is tranquil. We are not tranquil because we are excited over sense objects and we end up as slaves to the changing mental states that result. So practice really means searching to find our way back to the original state, that old thing. It is finding our old home, the original mind that does not waver and change following various phenomena. It is by nature perfectly peaceful. It is something that is already within us. Causes for not being peaceful are within us. They manifest when we are deluded. They manifest when we are deluded by internal and external phenomena. What we have to do is train the mind in correct view. Of course, right view is one of the one step, one of the eight uh, steps in the noble eightfold path. We don't see correctly, so we we are going a different way and we are thus experiencing everything as too short, too long, too something. Correct means seeing the characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and lack of a self in all we experience, meaning our bodies and minds. So these three things, impermanence or anicca, unsatisfactoriness or suffering or dukkha, and lack of a self, no self, anatta, these are the three characteristics of existence the Buddha taught. All things just as they are display the truth, but we have biases and preferences about how we want them to be. We are practicing to become like the Buddha, the knower of the world, and the world is these phenomena abiding as they are. When objects of mind arise, whether internally or externally, those are what we call sense phenomena or mental activity. The one who is aware of phenomena is called, well, whatever you want to call it is okay. You can call it mind. The phenomena is one thing and the one who knows it is another. It's like the eye and the forms it sees. The eye isn't the objects and the objects aren't the eye. The ear hears sounds, but the ear isn't the sound and the sound isn't the ear. When there is contact between the two, then things happen. Our attitude towards the five skandhas, that is body, sensations, perceptions, thoughts, and consciousness. I think elsewhere, Ajahn Chah says we can just reduce the five skandhas to body and mind. Our attitude uh, to these heaps that we see right here should be one of dispassion, dispassion and detachment because they don't follow our wishes. I think that's probably enough. If they survive, we shouldn't be overly joyful to the point of forgetting ourselves. If they break up, we shouldn't be overly dejected by that. Recognizing this much should be enough. Whatever type of meditation we're undertaking, this is really what it's about. But nowadays, it seems to me that when Buddhists talk about these things according to traditional explanations, it becomes vague and mixed up. But the truth isn't vague or mixed up. It remains as it is. So I feel it's better to seek out the source, looking at the way things originate in the mind. 
There's not a lot to this. It is said, this world of beings ruled by aging and impermanence is not long lasting. Beings means us. We are called human beings. There are beings different from us, such as animal beings, cattle and fowl, for example. But for all of them, aging is a fact of their existence, the decay of the various constituents of their physical bodies. These things are always changing. They don't have freedom to remain, but must follow the way of conditioned phenomena. The world of beings is thus, and we find ourselves always dissatisfied. Our emotions of love and hate never bring us satisfaction. We never feel we have enough, but are always somehow obstructed. Strictly speaking, as we say in our local idiom, we are people who don't know enough, we aren't satisfied to be what we are. So our minds waver endlessly, always changing into good and bad states with the different phenomena we encounter, like a cow not satisfied with its own tail. With unstable minds, we are always in this unsatisfied state, no matter what we experience. We become slaves to desire. So good to see this, to see it coming up. Anytime you have some form of mental suffering, impatience or anxiety or even depression, anything, anything that comes, instead of trying to get out of it, it's so helpful just to see it, to understand that it's a temporary phenomenon, it's not going to last forever, we're not going to last forever. It doesn't necessarily need to be fixed. It needs to be seen. Somewhere someone said that to be a Buddhist is to rejoice when our defilements arise because it gives us a chance to see them, to change it. Of course, what we want is for our defilements just to go away to find some way to duck them. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. <clears throat> it says, being a slave is a state of great suffering. A slave must always obey the master, even when told to do something that might get him killed. But with our craving, we are always eager and willing to follow its orders. Because of our self-cherishing habits, we are thus ruled. This world of beings actually has no ruler. It is we ourselves who rule our own lives because we have the power to decide on doing good or doing evil. No one else does these for us. This world of beings has nothing of its own. Nothing belongs to anyone. Seeing this with correct view, we will release our grip, just letting things be. Coming into this world and realizing its limitations, we do our business. We seek a profit in the way of building paramis, which is, I guess, uh, <clears throat> the uh, Pali word for the paramitas, the spiritual perfections.
to take one more chapter here. Uh, this one's entitled, That's About Right. It says, Where is the Dharma? The entire Dharma is sitting here with us. Whatever you experience is right, just as it is. Think of uh, Rinzai, Chinese master Lin Chi, who said, There is nothing to dislike. Whatever you experience is right. That's what it is. When you've gotten old, don't think that something's wrong. When your back is aching, don't think that's some kind of mistake. If you are suffering, don't think that's wrong. If you're happy, don't think that's wrong. All of this is dharma. Suffering is merely suffering. Happiness is merely happiness. Hot is merely hot. Cold is merely cold. It's not that I am happy, I am suffering, I am good, I am bad, I gained something, I lost something. What is there that can be lost by a person? There's nothing at all. Gaining something is dharma. Losing it is dharma. By dharma we mean the world of things. Being happy and comfortable is dharma. Being ill at ease is dharma. It means not grasping onto all these conditions, but recognizing what they are. If you have happiness, you realize, oh, happiness is not permanent. If you are suffering, you realize, oh, suffering is not permanent. Oh, this is really good. That's not permanent. That is bad, really bad, not permanent. They have their limits, so don't hold on so firmly to them. Not grasping, not rejecting. The Buddha taught about impermanence. This is the way things are. They don't follow anyone's wishes. That is noble truth. Impermanence rules the world, and that is something permanent. This is the point we are deluded at, so this is where you should be looking. Whatever occurs, recognize it is right. Everything is right in its own nature, which is ceaseless motion and change. Our bodies exist thus. All phenomena of body and mind exist thus. We can't stop them. They can't be stilled. Not being stilled means their nature means their nature of impermanence. If we don't struggle with this reality, then wherever we are, we will be happy. Wherever we sit, we are happy. Wherever we sleep, we are happy. Even when we get old, we won't make a big deal out of it. You stand up and your back hurts and you think, yeah, that's about right. It's right, so don't fight it. When the pain stops, you might think, ah, that's better. But it's not better. You're still alive, so it will hurt again. This is the way it is. So you have to keep turning your mind to this contemplation and not let it back away from the practice. <clears throat> we think that we know this, but we just have to keep remembering. We have to keep coming back. Okay. Can't tell you how many times in Sashin I've thought, okay, I've got it now. I've finally figured out how to practice. It's so simple. Then an hour later, what the hell happened to that? Nothing stays. Everything's moving. When we understand this, then there's not the regret. We realize this is okay. This is right. Don't believe in happiness. Don't believe in suffering. Don't get stuck in following after anything. 
With this kind of foundation, then whatever occurs, never mind, it isn't anything permanent. It isn't anything certain. The world is like this. Then there is a path for us, a path to manage our lives and protect ourselves. With the mindfulness and clear awareness of ourselves, with all-encompassing all wisdom, that is the path in harmony. Nothing can deceive us because we have entered the path. Constantly looking here, we are meeting the Dharma at all times. It's a, a real step forward when we begin to realize that our, our refuge is here in this moment with things as they are. It's, it's <clears throat> so habitual, so drilled into everybody, so reinforced by everything we encounter that the way to some kind of happiness is to protect ourselves, to try to manipulate things, get rid of the bad, chase after the good. But because everything is changing and everything is impermanent and everything is happening on a level we can't get at, that approach of trying to maximize our comfort is a dead end and it doesn't work. We live today in the most comfortable world the man has ever known, the most uh, medicine, uh, most ways of taking care of gross kind of suffering that shortened people's lives, you know, only a hundred years ago. And we're not happier. You walk past people in this country and they're well-dressed, they're obviously well-off, but a lot of times they can't even respond. It's funny, <clears throat> I noticed when I was in Mexico a number of years back riding the bus, people were not well-off. Of course, there were no seat belts or there wasn't even a door on the bus. People were hanging out. But people were full of life and happy. Of course, <clears throat> I'm sure they have problems too, just like we do. But uh, we haven't really solved anything by making our lives more comfortable. The change comes when we open our eyes and we're present. Just to realize, okay, this makes a difference. give myself, especially here in this session, I'm here for no other purpose, to give myself to my practice without worrying about where I'm going to get, without obsessing about my mind state, without monitoring my progress, just continually returning to my practice. This is the one lever I've got. This is the one thing I can do. And then let me just take what happens. Let me see what happens. It's kind of exciting to be able to just realize that's all we have to do. And even though we're going to screw it up and start trying to game the system, we can catch ourselves. We know what to look for. We know what we're seeing. And then we just pick it back up. Okay, <clears throat> our time is up, and we'll stop now and recite the four vows.